Psalm 72, 20 verses. Lord, would you help me to expound from your word this morning to major on what is just you wanting to be majored upon this morning and uh, to minor in just what was just a minor thing today and uh, display Jesus here in the Psalms. It's in your name we pray, amen. So, coming back from uh, a trip, I like to listen to books on tape or on MP3, whatever they are nowadays. <laughs> Although we do have a tape player. Anyways, um, Lord, help me to stick to what you want me to stick to. And, uh, and uh, listening to a podcast um, that shared the story of the rebellion in Munster back in the 17, or rather the 1530s, roughly, uh, under a man named John Van Leiden and John Matthias. I don't know if you've heard this story, but it is on the same level of occultic followings as the Jim Jones of the People's Temple, uh, you know, and the the mass murder and poisoning, speaking of Kool-Aid, uh, that happened in Jonestown, Guyana back in 78. Or it's on the same level as like, you know, there's Jim Jones for you in case you're wondering. Stylish looking dude. And by the way, these guys are good looking men. Um, stick to the things that need to be stuck to. And, and then there's David Koresh. A lot of us remember him back in 97, or, uh, or rather 93, and his cult of the Branch Davidians. Who, uh, who, you know, some 30, rather 79 of them died in Waco, Texas as they lit their compound on fire and, and uh, they died. Or maybe 97 with Marshall Applewhite and the Hale-Bopp cult or the Heaven's Gate cult that was trying to get shot up to the alien mothership following the Hale-Bopp comet. Not sure how many of these things ring a bell to y'all, but we've got this Munster Rebellion back in 19, uh, rather 1530s where uh, John Van Leiden, who was raised in poverty, very good-looking, charismatic leader, you know, a guy that just people wanted to follow because of his looks and his oratory skills. But as you study this just crazy story of this radical sect of Anabaptists, who, you know, the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther saying, hey, like, there's a whole lot going on because of these, you know, Catholic priests just saying that, you know, we should just follow whatever they say. Let's get back to just reading the word of God and having it be our authority. And so he got the word of God printed into the, the speech of common man or the language of the common man so that they could read it for themselves. Uh, and that's a wonderful, glorious thing that we rejoice in. Um, but something that kind of hopped off of that was that, well, like... God speaks to me with my independent revelation and my ind individual interpretation of the word. In fact, not only that, but God speaks to me um, just whatever he wants to say, and it doesn't matter if it contradicts the scriptures. And that's kind of what led into this radical Anabaptist movement in Munster in the 1500s, where uh, this man, John Van Leiden, and his mentor, John Matthias, declared themselves prophets who were anointed to uh, lead this 
rebellion and essentially set up their own nation. Um, they would call themselves prophets who heard just specific things from the Lord that would end up getting people killed. It ended up where they kicked out all the Catholics from Munster, and then those Catholics set up with their um, prince bishop a siege mound around the city of Munster that basically cut off all supplies from Munster so that this new nation of radical Anabaptists and their prophet leaders uh, who would then say that God would appoint them king and they should get all the food and they should get all the gold and they should get all the money, which led to all of the people starving to death. They're eating their shoelaces, they're eating their shoe leather, they're eating grass, they're eating bark off of trees, they're eventually eating their children and resorting to cannibalism uh, while the kings are fat and sassy, they're up in their palaces until finally the prince bishop uh, invades the city and kills almost all the men in the city of about the size of Prineville, you know, roughly 10,000, kills most of the women, most of the children, uh, thousands and thousands of people dead. As is often the case when we try to take the kingdom of God into our own hands and we try to set up um, very influential men around us who have diverted from the word of God and have set themselves up as something special, and they begin to rule over the people in a way that is uh, tyrannical and oppressive towards them. And the reason I bring all this up in this horribly sad story of Jean Van Leden and the rebellion of Munster is because in Psalm 72, we have this incredible psalm that tells of the reign of the Messiah and what it will be like. And I'm telling you now, it is far, far different than what these men were setting up with their thousands of followers or the Jim Joneses or the David Koresh's or these men who oppressed the people and would get the people slaughtered. Whereas in this messianic uh, psalm, we see a hero that cares for the poor and gives his life for the poor and finds their lives precious in his sight. It's, it's far different. And so God give us discernment in a day where men keep rising up saying that they're the Messiah. In fact, Van Leden would say that uh, God had told him that he is, um, he's not God, but he's better than King David. And so he's like this anointed chosen one to help bring God back. And what sprung that to mind is that here in Psalm 72, our last psalm of this series, we see this king's son, Solomon. Someone who's of the line of David. And that even in his special anointing as king, he's someone who will serve as a type of Christ in his generosity, in his love for the poor, and the wonderful prosperity and peace and righteousness that would come that is just a foreshadowing of the true and better and greater peace and prosperity and righteousness in the son of David, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. We see all of that in his kingdom. As we read this psalm today, it's a wonderful history that is prophetic. And it promises the one who will come to fulfill its destiny that it's not actually Solomon, that it's someone far more eternal and far greater than Solomon itself. It was believed that this psalm was 
used in the context of ceremonies. It was a royal psalm. It was used surrounding the monarchy of Israel. But as William says, if this was used in the ceremony, the ceremony would be dwarfed by its great vision. It's got a vision that is far greater than anything that a mere man could ever bring. It's far wider in scope than any mere flesh could ever cause to happen in his own days. Joseph Carroll said, This psalm was penned by a king. It is dedicated to a king. And it's chiefly intended concerning him who is the king of kings. William Binney, or as I like to call him, Bill Binney. No, I think he died like in the 1800s. So, I haven't talked to him lately. He said, the whole psalm, beginning to end, is not only capable of being applied to Christ, but great part is incapable of being fairly applied to any other. In other words, who we're reading of in the Old Testament psalm is of Jesus. It's Jesus. It screams of Jesus. And last night, just had a wonderful evening with my family, with my kids, and just seemed like the Lord was just really just, you know, we could just sense his presence there. I could anyways. Even there's like fighting and bickering going on. It was like, I, I think you're here, Lord. That's really, really good, you know. And after dinner, I just was able to sit down with my kids and just having a heart to disciple them. And I whipped out this children's Bible that it, I was going to bring it with me today. I know we've got a ton in the library and in the children's ministry. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle of it says, Every Story Whispers His Name. And that's really true of the scripture. And I'm teaching my kids last night. I'm saying, guys, the Bible seems like a big book, huh? Yeah, it seems big. It seems like impossible to read, huh? No, it seems like we could read it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know? I said, guys, and as the storybook even says, yeah, it seems like it's a list of rules and stuff to do and a lot of story of heroes and all of these things. And, and there's rules in there and there's heroes in there, but don't miss the main point of it all. That there's an enemy and there is wickedness and there is sin that leads to death and eternal death. But there's a hero, and every hero of every story is pointing to the great hero who's to come. And the whole book is pointing to him, and it's Jesus. And so as we're reading through the law and the prophets and the historical books and the poetic books, don't forget, kids, it's talking about Jesus. He's the hero. He's the champion of our stories. And it was just wonderful to be reminded of that as we get into this psalm. And there is... There's a hero. There's a great king. So little of the psalm is at all applicable to Solomon. And the greater part of it exclusively belongs to the Messiah. And so starting out in verses 1 through 4, we have justice for the king. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Give the king your judgment speaks of Give the king your authority, the ability to make the decisions, the ability to judge, the ability to plan. O Elohim is the name for God here. Our glorious king of Zion is given the rule and the judgment of the nations. And we see that that eventually will come to pass in full force during his reign. The psalm said, give your righteousness to the king's son. 
You know, the heading of our psalm says that Solomon wrote this. And so as he's writing this, he is the son of the king, King David. In the same way, we have Jesus, who is a son of the king, the king of the universe. He's the son of God, but he himself is also king. Verse 2, he will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Something beautiful in this psalm is we see the heart of God for the poor, for the people who have nothing. And that when he rules and judges over them, it will be with righteousness. Jesus will faithfully plead one's case and execute justice for those who are without property, without wealth, without the ability to pay bribes, those who might even be called wretched in society, those who are needy. The king's son would have the ability to, in righteous innocence and honesty, judge over these matters. And as you go and spend any time in court, and if you go into the Prineville court system, of which I've been a part of a few different times, you're able to go in and you just see, you know what, many of these people are of the poorer sect in our community. They're stealing chapstick and they're getting caught. And they're standing in there for, for theft and robbery. And many of them, you know, just by outward appearance, are, are poorer in our classes. And you just hope that the judge would look out across the bench and with justice and integrity make the calls. And not make the call based on outward appearance or social standing. And we know that the judge of all judges, who's the king of all kings, he will be fair and right and innocent in the way he judges. Now what's incredible about reading these two verses, and you may have gone there already, especially knowing that Solomon wrote this, is that when Solomon became king, he went and spent some time worshiping. And as he was sleeping in the mountains of Gilboa, uh, or Gibeon rather, uh, he had a vision from the Lord, and the Lord said to him, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Now just think for a minute, what would you answer the Lord if he said, ask whatever you want, and it's yours? <laughs> I'll tell you right now, I don't even need to think about it. And Solomon says, Lord, man, I'm like a little kid here. I've just assumed this throne. I don't know how to go out or to come in. I've got all these people to rule over. And so, Lord, I would ask for an understanding heart that I would be able to rule your people rightly. And the Lord is just astounded by this. He says, man, because you didn't ask for like riches and wealth and a long life, but you asked for wisdom and an understanding heart, I'm going to give you wisdom and an understanding heart, but I'm also going to give you the things that you didn't ask for. Wealth and riches and a long day of success. But at the end of that promise, he says, the Lord says the same thing to Solomon that King David said to his son Solomon, that if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And we see that Solomon is such a great picture of starting out strong in the race, starting out well in the race but finishing poorly. The middle of the race, the middle of Solomon's life. 1 Kings 11 tells us that he went and married foreign wives who worshipped other gods and they turned his heart away from worshipping 
the true and living God to serving idols and building these places of pagan worship that would even contain places of sexual immorality and child sacrifice and human sacrifice. He went off. But then he would write the book of Ecclesiastes when he comes back and he says, man, I went off. I was searching for happiness in all the wrong places. And I'm telling you this, the best thing that man can do is serve God and worship him and fear him. For this is man's all. So maybe finishing the race with Solomon, but running it poorly. As great as Solomon was, Matthew 12, 42 has Jesus saying that the queen of the south would rise up in judgment of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he's, excuse me, referencing the queen of Sheba. But then Jesus says these fantastic words. And indeed, one greater than Solomon is here. After Jesus rose from the dead, he would speak to the disciples and the two on the road to Emmaus. And he would open up the scriptures from Moses and through the prophets, from Genesis through Malachi. And he would show the things that spoke of himself. And it says that he opened up the eyes of the disciples to be able to comprehend the word of God. That the word of God isn't primarily about me and how to teach me how to be a good person. But the word of God is about him and how I wasn't a good person. And so he came and lived the life of a good person so that I could have life through him. Every story whispers his name. And the story of Solomon in the Psalms, Psalms of men they used to call him. No, they didn't ever. Um, even Jesus would say, hey, it's pointing to me. One greater than Solomon is here. Colossians 2.3, written by Paul, says, In him, or in whom, speaking of Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As great as Solomon was, wisest man, there was the man that would come, and he was greater. The government of Solomon was fantastic. And so one day will be the government of the king. You see, the kingdom of God is what theologians say is already, but not yet. There are many wonderful things about the kingdom of God that we can partake in now. We can have forgiveness of sins and redemption and reconciliation with our God and creator and intimate relationship with him. He's given us gifts, wonderful gifts to be used and to manifest the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 says. He meets us. He comforts us. He speaks and encourages us. There's a lot of things already of the kingdom of God now. But as 1 Corinthians 13 says, now we know in part and now we see in part as in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see and know just as we are known. There's that not yet when Jesus comes and we see him face to face and we'll always be with the Lord. We look forward to that not yet part of the kingdom of God. Isaiah prophesied of this greater than Solomon, that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now I've got a billion references today and I've just been praying all morning. Like I know I can't just sit up here and read Bible references, but I might. But, 
as I'm reading this, and I'm thinking of this story I've heard over the last few weeks of this rebellion at Munster, there is a far difference between one who's been anointed prophet through the butcher and goldsmith in his town who also heard from God to set this man up as king, John Van Leiden, who would then oppress the people and rather serving them by laying down his life for them, he would rule over them. The Isaiah prophecy does not fit those men. Righteousness and justice, judgment and justice forever. And at the end of that siege there in Munster, the governor who kind of helped set the whole thing up snuck a letter out to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther wrote back in just a way that I guess only a reformer could. And he says, you guys are stupid people. You should have seen this coming a long time ago. You have departed from the truth of God and followed false prophets. You're getting what's coming to you, essentially is what he said. Not sure there was a ton of grace in that from the champion of grace, I'm sure I'm not paraphrasing it correctly, so go read it on your own. But essentially, people don't get away from the word of God. The beautiful thing of the Reformation was that we got the word of God in our own language. To rather have power-hungry men tell us what it says and then give it to us, we can read and be as the Bereans of Acts 17.11 and search out whether these things are so. But we do well to heed the, the warning from Peter that there is no private interpretation. There's no private whatever you think is right. There are rules of interpretation that we would do well to learn and to grow in as the church. And part of that is when we look at the Messiah's reign, we see a reign of justice, a care for the poor, and of righteousness and integrity. As Isaiah said, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and of counsel and might. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. Unlike these men who stole each other's wives and would end up ending the whole siege with 16 wives around them. It's like somehow we sort of got off path. Use your Bibles, friends. This is, by the way, New Testament period. This isn't like some Old Testament, what was the deal with many wives back then? Yeah, let's read the book of Paul. Let's read what Jesus has to say. Let's look at all this, okay? His delight would be in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness, he would judge the poor, Isaiah 11 says, verse 4. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In other words, leave your door unlocked because I'm going to come in in the middle of the night and look under your bed and make sure you're not hiding a ham hock under there. Then I'm taking it back to my palace and me and my buddies are eating it. Something's not right here. Watch out. It happens. You saw the pictures. Those guys, they look good. They got the big 70s glasses going on. Easy to follow. Open your Bibles, people. This king, Isaiah says in 32.1, would reign in righteousness and princes would rule with justice. In our psalm, verse 3, it says that the mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. It was at one time from the mountains that the robbers would rush in. Sort of a Robin Hood hanging out up there in the forest, right? But even the bad robbers would come and they would rob the people. 
But in the kingdom of God, the mountains will become a place, and it, and it was also the case in ancient days, and even in some sources, it still happens today, where you would herald the news from a mountain, it, the, the sound can travel, and the news of the goodness would be spread out. And that's what speaking of here is that these towers upon the mountains would be wonderful heralding spots for righteousness to be declared. You don't have to know me or my teachings very long to know that God has given us an open door in Nepal, the highest mountains in the world and the highest hills, to be going up into those mountains and to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus to people who've never heard his name before and don't know how to be forgiven of their sins. And God's given our church a vision and a mission to go out there and to reach these people. And so whenever I read of the mountains and righteousness being spoken forth from them, my heart leaps a little bit. As Isaiah 52, 7 prophesied, quoted in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaim peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion, you or your God reigns. The mountains will be used as a place to speak of the goodness of the reign of God. Verse 4 of our psalm. It's good to have your Bible open since we'll be hopping from verses and be able to just come back quickly to our text. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in presses the oppressor. More often than not, it's the poor who see the lack of justice. They are the ones who tend to be the pack horses for others ruled over and oppressed. But here we see in the kingdom of God that the oppressors who've been the great breakers are themselves broken. There's a wonderful song of the, of the old time that says, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. As he will save the children of the needy. Oh, does your heart not burn for that? He will save the children of the needy. And don't we know that that is the heart of the king of kings? That true and undefiled religion before God and man is this. To take care of the widows and the orphans. And friends, we have orphans all around us. We have a foster system that is so overwhelmed and overrun, they don't know what to do with themselves. When Lindsay and I went to adopt from the foster system, the woman from Crook County stood there with her hair shooting out like this, and she said, after our sixth session with her, she said, oh, you're from Crook County? Don't even try to adopt. We can't even get to you. Just give up. She says, it's Tuesday. I've already worked my 40 hours. We have so much, we just can't do it. Until God has opened up a door in our community through safe families. To be able to adopt and take care of children, but to be able to go around the bureaucratic red tape of the DHS system. No offense, but they even know too many rules has made it to where they just can't do what they need to be able to do. And God has opened up a door through safe family uh, to be able to adopt and care for people uh, since, I think, what was it, June, since we've had little kids in our church from this family uh, that we've had in our church, probably four or five different uh, kids uh, who've been able to be taken care of through safe families. And just this week, they're going back to their mom. But there are more. There are way more. 
There are poor and needy. There are the orphans and the children of the needy who need our help. And I just pray, and we've been praying that God would just stir up in our hearts such a ministry to the children here in this church that almost every family, our default would be, we're going to adopt, we're supposed to adopt. And if the Lord doesn't have that for us, then Lord, just shut the door. But pure and undefiled religion before God and man is this, taking care of the orphans, maybe you want to go that route, (laughs) and taking care of the orphans, widows and the orphans. Let's pray about that. Families, pray about that. Build that extra room. Build that bunk bed. Let's get those kids. Let's take care of them. It's the kingdom of God. That's part of the kingdom of God here and now. That he would use us by his spirit and by his grace to love on the children of the needy. Through our connection in the Himalayas, we've been able to be a part of gospel transformation that would help save little kids who are being sex trafficked, It was 16,000 kids a year in 2014 being trafficked out of the Himalayans through the mafia-run extortion system that's going on over there. And in one year, our contacts said that number had gone up 150% to some 42,000 kids a year being trafficked and being raped some 16 times a day between the ages of 8 and 18. I'm sorry that that's brutal. I don't quite know my audience, and that might be an error on my part. But that's what's going on. Lord, let your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And use our church and the riches that we've been given here in America to go out into these countries. It's not just Nepal, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, India. These places are heavily trafficked. And Lord, let us go and help rescue these little kids and give them hope and comfort and peace. This is what he does. This is your God. If you don't like it and you want to live for yourself, you might want to find a different God. But this is the God of the Old and New Testament. This is the son of David. This is what he does. He will break in pieces the oppressor, the human traffickers. He will crush them. And our prayer on this end of eternity is break them, Lord. But don't let them be shattered. Break them as the Saul of Tarsus was broken. They might become the Paul the Apostles and go and reach as well. It's important to remember that not only is this a psalm and not only is this an eschatological prophecy we look forward to one day, but when Jesus was here in his first coming, his earthly ministry was one of loving on the poor and rebuking the oppressor. Verses five through seven, we have the people's response to this. What happens when we have such a king? Verse five, they shall fear you, revere you, be in awe of you and worship you as long as the sun and moon endure. Throughout all generations, the poor, the children of the needy and the oppressor will all fear God forever. Now, you know the story of Solomon when the two harlots came in before his throne and one had had a baby three days before another And as she woke up to nurse her child, she found her child dead. And then the other woman appearing to be holding her son. And so they went in with their case before King Solomon, demanding justice. That is my child. She swapped babies out in the night. 
And the Lord gave Solomon such wisdom. He said, bring me a sword. We'll cut the living child in half. And now you can both have half. And the woman who was really the mother, it says she yearned with compassion for her child. And she said, no, 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 just let her have, just let her have the baby. Just let the child live. And the other mother who must have missed the cue said, no, 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 cut it in half. I don't really care. And so Solomon said, give the baby to, to the compassionate mother. That's the real mother. And what happened was that all Israel heard of the judgment which this king had rendered and they feared the king for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. That's the same wisdom that is upon Jesus and his wonderful ministry. It's through all the generations. This is the wonderful praise that happens after the end of every great heroic tale that people would fear God in what he's done in, in giving great judgments or in giving great victories. Go to verse 6 here. As I read from Spurgeon, his kingdom moreover is no house of cards or dynasty of days. It is as lasting as the lights of heaven. Days and nights will cease before he abdicates his throne. Would to God that fresh vigor were imparted to all its citizens to push at once the conquests of Emmanuel to the uttermost ends of the earth. Throughout all generations shall the throne of the Redeemer stand. Humanity shall not wear out the religion of the incarnate God. What does such a text do to us? It causes us to pray as Spurgeon, would to God that fresh vigor were imparted to all the citizens to push at once the conquest of Emmanuel, God with us, to the uttermost ends of the earth. And would to God stir in us in this season of another Nepal trip that we would either be going in January or we would be going through our generous giving and getting the good news there or we would be going through intentional, deliberate prayer lives of fasting and prayer for this team and this nation and sending notes of encouragement, spurring this team on. Would to God we would have fresh vigor for his king to come on earth as it is in heaven. Verse six, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing. And who doesn't love it when it rains before you mow? Might have meant something a little different there. Like showers that water the earth in Samuel and Ezekiel and Hosea, such wonderful words like this rain and showers are used when God's kingdom is ruling in righteousness. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. When he comes to us, when he comes to us, it's like a refreshing shower in springtime. Verse 7, in his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. And so the righteous will sprout and shoot in plentiful peace until the moon wears out. Men will learn war no more. Justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness remains in the fruitful fields. We will be growing in his grace and righteousness. Verses 8 through 11, we have this wonderful section of the psalm that shows this king's universal reign, that it'll cover the earth. Verse 8, 
he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. His scepter will be ultimate. It will be extended from the Pacific to the Atlantic and from the Atlantic to the Pacific, you might even say, from the Californias to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made. You might even say, from the mountains to the prairies, to the oceans white with foam, from sea to sea and shining sea, the blessings of the king will be universal. You don't have to leave because of that. (laughs) He has a dominion and kings will fall down before him and serve him. He is a king who delivers and spares and saves and lives and daily he will be praised. Verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. In other words, eat the dust. Tongues that once railed at the Redeemer will lick the dust before their knees hit the ground or as their knees hit the ground. As Philippians prophesies, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So look down at your knees, because those bad boys are hitting the dirt to worship God, one way or another. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Sebo will offer gifts. Wonderful things that happen within Solomon's rule and reign, and yet it's eschatological as one greater than Solomon is here. Verse 11, yes, and we just a beautiful star in my notes that shows us his heart for the nations. All the kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. We see the extent of his rule by these two words, all kings and all nations. This is all throughout the scriptures. And we see it beautifully come to pass in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, when the wise men came into the house, saw the young child with Mary and his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened up their treasures, they presented gifts to him of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Prophetic gifts, by the way, of his kingship, of his priestliness, And the death that he would die. Care for the poor in verses 12 through 14. He will deliver the needy when he cries. The poor also. And him who has no helper. They have no options. They have no help. We have a proverb in our our culture that is not scriptural by the way. That God helps those who help themselves. But what this verse shows us is that God helps those that can't help themselves. And who have no one to help them. His pity is for the one who says, woe is me, I'm a sinner, I've got nothing. And the one who will leave condemned is the one who says, I'm righteous, I've done it all on my own, I don't need anyone's help. Verse 14, he will redeem their life from oppression and violence. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. God is the God who redeems, which is a beautiful word that means to purchase, to buy back, and to pay the ransom price. And the New Testament tells us that he didn't purchase us with the blood of bulls and goats or things like that that perish, but he purchased us with his own precious blood 
as a lamb that was without spot and blameless. He purchased us to deliver us off the slavery auction block of sin and of death, that we could be his people. And what does he think about his people? He doesn't throw us out as as cannon fodder, but precious in his sight are the death of his saints. And should they go to be martyred, we see in the word that he will avenge them. And he loves them. And he cares for their life. Verse 15, God's blessing. He shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayers also will be made for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. He was slain, but he rose from the dead and shall live. He has risen and will forever live. Prayers can be made for him in the same sense of God save the king. But also the New Testament shows us that prayers are made through him. That we pray to him as our mediator. And he always prays for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Verse 16 shows us God's kingdom and the worship team can come on up. God's kingdom here, where the king is blessed when his people are blessed. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. And those of this city shall flourish like grass of the earth. I love this commentary that I read from a couple hundred years ago. His name's James Sherman. He says, doubtless it has been familiar for you to see corn merchants carrying small bags with them. As some translations translate this, handfuls of corn. They contain, or rather they contain just a handful of corn in their bag, which they exhibit as specimens to the store for which they wish to sell. Now, let me beg every one of you to carry a small bag with this precious corn of the gospel. When you write a letter, drop in a word for Christ. It may be a seed that will take root. Speak a word for Christ wherever you go. It may be a seed productive of a great deal of fruit. Drop a tract on the ground or in a house. It may be a seed productive of a plenteous harvest. The most difficult place, the steepest mountain, the spot where there is the least hope for producing fruit is to be the first place of attack. And the more labor there is required, the more is to be given in the distribution of of the seeds. I won't say anything about Nepal or the mountains. But seed is needed there. Grain needs to be cast. And just as Spurgeon said, oh to God that we would have vigor in our evangelizing of this kingdom. As Sherman says, let me beg every one of you to carry a small bag of the seed of the gospel and cast it. And something we see in the New Testament is just a seed is thrown, but God gives the increase of his kingdom and churches grow by the multitudes. Verse 17, we have the beauty of his name as king. Verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. His name is Jesus. His name is a wonderful name. Philippians says that his name is the name above all names. 
And it's through that name, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, that all the nations will be blessed. As our psalm concluded in that verse, all nations will call him blessed. Verses 18 and 19, a final blessing. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. As we have a vision of the messianic King Jesus, it is overwhelming to see his graciousness and his rule to the poor and needy, of which we're the richest in the world, and yet, man, don't we so often feel so poor and needy, and I know that that's a reality to many of us here, and we need the grace of God poured out on us. The land where he rules is blessed through him. Creation and nations Respond to his reign by singing out, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And don't you love this? Who only does wondrous, wonderful things, extraordinary things. He even says in one place in the Bible, Why do you ask what my name is, seeing that you know it is wonderful? I'm wonderful. He is wonderful. And blessed be his name. Amen and amen. Trustworthy, trustworthy. True, true. Yes, yes, this is our king. And the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's stand together. We pray your kingdom would come today, Lord. We know there's a lot pushing back against that in our culture, in our country, and the decisions that we've made in our own lives, in our frailty, and our prone to wander, in the ways that we've sinned this week, in the rebellion of our hearts. And here we are as little children, hearing about an awesome king, saying, let your kingdom come, God. Let it come in my life. Let it come in my heart. Be the king. Let your presence that I've read of in Psalm 72 happen here in me and in my family. I need you to be the ruler who is a righteous judge. I need you to be a ruler who is fair and equitable. We need you to be the God and the king who is over creation. And creation responds to you with rain and gracious rain upon our lives. Lord, many of us are poor and we're feeling the pinch. And I pray that this church would help respond by feeling the squeeze, by giving, sacrificially, generously, to kingdom work for this building project we're doing, to sending laborers out into the harvest, to providing for the poor and needy. Let us be generous with your resources, having a heart not what should I give, but where, what do I dare keep for myself? This is yours, God. Lord, that we would feel the squeeze in our wallets so that those around us wouldn't feel the pinch. We pray the God of the kingdom of God, this King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the name above names, his name would be known in our church and in our communities and in our homes and among our children and in our marriages. That we would say, blessed be his name. He does wondrous, wonderful things. And Lord, you do. We can't even count them all, but Lord, 
We know we should try so that we can praise you. Lord, we pray for the children of the Himalayas and of Cambodia and of Laos, across Asia and Europe and Africa. Pray for the little children in Burkina Faso who are slave laborers and panning for gold. 75% of their little girls who are mutilated. We pray, Lord, for the children of this world. And Lord, that preachers everywhere with those beautiful feet on the mountains would start heralding your gospel. That gospel transformation would come and change these people groups and these nations. That you would move on the hearts of the Sauls of Tarsuses and the mafia owners and runners, those kingpins. Lord, that they would hear the gospel and get saved. The rule of terror would be over and that the rule of the Messiah would come. We pray that you would rain down these showers of blessings before the lawn is mown, Lord. That you would cause our grass to grow. Let us be fruitful, God. Let us be like the church that was so small and yet like that mustard seed just grows like a giant bush. That, Lord, we would grow here at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Grow this church, we pray. Not for numbers sake or that we could boast or anything like that, but grow so that we would have more to send out, more people to send out, more resources to send out so that this world would know you, God. And we will give you the glory. As we close in worship and in song today, we invite you to sing with us. And maybe you came here, you walked through those doors, you're unregenerate, you're a rebel, a sinner, just you've turned your back on God. You've turned your shoulder against him. You shoot out the lip at him. And seeing who he is, you know that wisdom would be to turn towards him, to follow him, to bow the knee now and to declare him to be Lord. We invite you to sing with us today this song of his reign. And you can ask during this song that he would change your heart towards him, change your life for him, that he would redeem the years that the locust and the poison has eaten away and that he would replace it with new growth. Sing this with us today.